Hello, I'm Kate Price-McCarthy and welcome to this mini-podcast episode, which features an interview with comedian, actor, Twitter star and author Emma Kennedy. Her latest novel, The Never-Ending Summer, is set in the early 1970s when best friends Agnes and Bea decide on one last adventure before their adult lives begin. And while the two friends head off to London, Agnes's mother, Florence, sets off to Europe on her own voyage of self-discovery. Emma talks about how her own teenage life provided some inspiration for the book and about the impact of feminism on women's lives in the 1970s, particularly with Jermaine Greer's groundbreaking book, The Female Eunuch. She also talks about the power of female friendship and about how she made the shift from a career in law to comedy and writing. The interview starts with Emma reading a short extract from the start of the novel. Okay, B said, exhaling heavily. Have you finished it? Agnes reached into the blue canvas bag slung across her chest and pulled out a battered-looking book. It was the female eunuch. I have. She handed it to B. What did you think? It's the filthiest book I've ever read. B's face lit up. She was an odd-looking girl, one eye that veered in towards her nose, teeth that seemed as if they'd been thrown into her mouth, and a ruddy complexion that left her wind-blasted. She would have been perfect on a farm in the middle of nowhere, but here, on Christchurch Meadow, among the willowy rowers and the beech trees, she was out of place, a mongrel among the thoroughbreds. Filthier than Chatterley? Bee narrowed her eyes. Agnes nodded, so much filthier than Chatterley. Agnes stared down at the cover, the naked female torso hanging from a hook. Bee's hand was hovering over it, as if it might be a crystal ball. Her eyes were wide and staring. She looked delighted and astonished. It's definitely the filthiest book I have ever read, absolutely definitely, and the most daring and the most startling and the most powerful. Did you like the book about courage and independence? Agnes nodded. And the bit about security being the denial of life? Agnes tilted her head. I wasn't quite sure what that meant. B gripped Agnes by the shoulders. It's about your mother. It's about my mother. It's about us. We have to throw it all off, Agnes. We have to wave goodbye to safety. We have to take the bull by the horns. After our exams, B's hands fell from Agnes's shoulders. She gave a shrug. Yes, after our exams. They both stood for a moment, minds racing at different speeds. I like the bit about personal responsibility. Agnes didn't want B to think she wasn't embracing these new ideas, but in truth, it scared her a little. It's hard to break away from the only things you've ever known. B gave a small nod, but didn't seem overly impressed. Agnes tried again. I think it's entirely dangerous. How'd you feel about that? B winked. Thrilled? Me too. Agnes smiled. She wasn't sure she meant it. Still, B would be happy. I think I might be a bit in love with Jermaine Greer. What do you think about that? B's face shone with excitement. Why wouldn't you be? Mm. We need to become second wave feminists immediately. They, they seem to be able to do whatever they want. 
I can't quite get over it, she shook her head. Shall I give a copy to my mother? Agnes sounded playful, as if the thought was outrageous. Bee stopped, her mouth slightly open. I'm not sure she's ready for it, are you? Women putting themselves first? Agnes laughed. Her brain would explode. She paused. Maybe she needs her brain to explode. Maybe everyone needs their brains to explode. Agnes looked back towards the rowers. After we've finished our exams. Yes, nodded Bee. After we've finished our exams. Agnes, she said, gripping her friend's arm. There's a revolution going on right now out there. She turned and pointed off towards the distance. And we need to be a part of it. Yes, we do. I have given this some thought, said B, her face settling into seriousness. And I think the first thing we need to do after we finished our exams is lose our virginity. I can think of nothing more important. We cannot be full-blown second-wave feminists until we have had sex. Thank you so much for that. It was really hard not to laugh as you were reading it, reading it out. So uh, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about your latest book, The Neverending Summer, which was an absolute joy to read. Oh, thank you. It's about two generations of women, uh, Agnes Ledbury and her best friend Bee, who are just about to finish Secretarial College in Oxford. And it's also about Agnes's mother, Florence, who up until this time has led a very conventional married life. So could you tell us a bit about how their different stories develop from there? Yes, it's set in 1971. And and as the the bit I've just read out uh, makes clear, um, The Female Eunuch has been published. And we forget now, sort of, it was like throwing a hand grenade into society, that book. And it, it had different impacts on different generations of women. So for for young women like Agnes, who um, at this point in the story is, is 18 slash 19, she's suddenly realising that women can be sexually liberated. And, and it, it, that, that in, it, in and of itself was an enormous step forward. Uh, women were encouraged to enjoy sex, to take control of their own bodies uh, and all of that. But for women of uh, Florence's generation, who is Agnes's uh, mother, who would have been a typical 1950s housewife, for them it was like a little bit more serious and upsetting because what the book was basically telling them was that they were unpaid slaves and that their life was pointless. And I think that's what I wanted to explore, somebody who has just accepted her lot in life and is just a housewife and who suddenly thinks there's more to life than this, surely. Because remember, it, at that time, they, they when people got married, the woman would be handed this little red book um, and it was a prescribed daily diary of what you had to do on any given day as a housewife. And, it's, and it was incredibly prescriptive and people stuck to it. I, I love the scene at the Tupperware party where mm. where Florence asks her mm. married friends whether they are happy to be housewives and, and the yes. floodgates open. I found that scene very moving. Yes. Well, it, it's quite interesting. I was I did a lot of research for the book and, and um, it was around this time as well that the very first women's lib meeting started to happen. And what's fascinating is that the word sexism didn't exist they didn't know how to describe 
what their experience was at the hands of men or at the hands of society at that time. Um, and that, that sort of seems extraordinary now, given that, that you know, it's, that's only 40, 50 years ago, but they didn't know how to explain sexism. But they knew that they that they felt it. They knew that they experienced it. But they didn't have the language to explain it. It is a fascinating time for women's lives, and and I can see that you had done a, a lots of research to really get under its skin. Um, maybe could you talk about some of the books that I know you found particularly helpful? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, I I think if anyone wants to. Um... Uh, to do any in-depth reading about this period, then I really can't recommend enough uh, Virginia Nicholson's uh, books. Uh, there are two. I'm just looking at them down on my shelves now. Uh, there's one, uh, uh, How Was It For You? Um, and there's a, she has, she's written another great one called Perfect Wives. Um, but the, both of those books are, are absolutely sort of invaluable if you're trying to get to the bottom of what women's experiences were. Uh, during the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, and then I, I read Rosie Boycott's book, um, her autobiography. That there was loads of, loads of, loads of things that, and lots of spare rib magazines I, I spent hours pouring through, uh, mostly because I wanted to, to find some actual demos that uh, that that they could have gone on. So uh, the 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 chapter where they go and, and are slapping stickers on uh, breasts in the London Underground, that that was something that actually happened. I'll make sure that we've got links to some of the books you've mentioned um, because I'm sure they'll all be available in yeah. our libraries. There's a bibliography at the back of the book. Obviously, this is a this is a, a dominant theme within the book, but it is also the story of this of Agnes and this dreadful disappointment she's living with at the time. Now, um, it's it's far from autobiographical, partly because of the time in which it's set, but I know your life does overlap with Agnes's a bit in that you too, like Agnes, had your A-levels kibosh by illness. Um, perhaps could you tell us a bit more about that and also about whether you had a B, did you have a B friendship in your life to help you get through it? Uh, well, yes, and yes, um, <laughs> I I went to as was uh, very much de rigueur in the the mid eighties. There was only one thing to do if you were a, a child of my age, and, and that was on a Friday or a Saturday. There would always be a village disco, and um, I went to one and I snogged a boy, and I can't even remember his name, but he was sort of like the equivalent of a, of a Death Eater in Harry <laughs> Potter because he gave me. Uh, glandular fever and I and, and some people aren't that unwell with glandular fever you know you can have like a w week off school or whatever but I, I I was desperately desperately ill and I wasn't properly well for a year um and the the upshot of it was uh, was that I missed out on my grades I'd been given an offer to go to Oxford and I didn't get the grades and that was the end of that and um Instead of going into clearing, it was like something inside me had died because I, I had given myself one goal in life and it was to get to Oxford. And I don't know where that had come from because nobody in my family had even been to university, let alone Oxford. I, I was just fixated on it. And instead of going to university, I went to work in a hotel as a washer-upper and I was promoted to vegetable peeler and I thought, oh, I'm doing well here, you know, I'm, I'm earning a bit of money. I can, I can afford to buy skirts from Gap. And um, 
I just just gave up on all thoughts of 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 not not just going to Oxford of of going to any university at all. And then I had a very chance encounter with um, an old English teacher called Mrs. Graby, and she uh, had retired, so she didn't know what had happened to me. And she came, uh, and it was about early September. She said, "Oh, you must be off to university," and I said. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm working up at the, at the hotel, and she looked at me with, and, and you know, it's sometimes in your life people give you a look that it, it, it of, of utter incredulity, mm-hmm. and it was one of those looks. And she just stared at me and she said, "Emma, you, you were the best English student I ever had. The thought of you not going to university is ridiculous." And then she said the one sentence that changed my life forever. And I will credit her for this until the day I die. She said, anybody can give up, Emma. It's the easiest thing in the world. Never give up. And then she gave me her phone number and she said, if you change your mind, you come and see me. And I went home and I felt and I felt properly ashamed that I had given myself a goal in life and I had let it go. And uh, with the help of uh, a, a girl who, who was in the year above, who was who was writing me letters saying, you know, don't you know, you must get, you mustn't give up. You mustn't give up. You mustn't give up. So she was my B. And my mother as well sort of stepped up to the plate and said, come on, you know you can do this. And so I started going to see Mrs. Graby and and she would make me cups of tea and give me slices of cake and we would talk about books and poems and 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 plays. And she packed me back off up to Oxford and I got in. Part of this story is is a summer road trip around Europe. Yes. And reading this in the midst of lockdown genuinely felt a bit like going on a real <laughs> holiday, or at least oh, as close to a holiday as we can get at the moment. I mean, the sun, the food, mouth was yeah. watering. Um, did you mm. write this during lockdown? And if so, was it a real escape for you as well? No, I didn't. No. <laughs> Uh, th- this was actually written a, a while back. It, the, the, the publication date was was pushed to this year. It was supposed to come out last August, but we moved it because of pandemic and all sorts. So no, I actually wrote it just. I finished it and handed it in. I think just before lockdown started. But I I love writing about being on holiday, as you probably know. Um, but it, it was it was a joy to finally write about a hol- holidays that were nice and where nothing disastrous <laughs> happened. And another part of the story is about what Agnes and B get up to in London because they end up yes. having all kinds of adventures, mainly through their yes. work for this rather extraordinary job agency run by Mr yes. Adler and his agency. Mr Adler, for, his agency for go-getting ladies, love that. Yes. And so was yeah. there a real inspiration behind this agency? Please tell me that there was. Yes. Yes, there was. Yes. Um, there, there, there used to be very dodgy employment agencies. Uh, my, um, my wife's mother uh, was a temp during this time. And she, I sat down with her and she was telling me all the, the dodgy, weird jobs that she would be sent to go to. So that that was something that happened. But I also, again, I did uh, during the course of my research. And, and again, I, I, I list them all in, in the back of the book so that you can go and look uh, look them up and, and watch them for yourself. The public information film that they end up having to be extras on, that public information film does exist. It's about a purse pincher. That does exist. And there were two girls that are standing 
at, at the till and I just suddenly something just struck me I thought oh wouldn't it be lovely if that that was Agonism B so that that's <laughs> why they ended up being in the public information film now through Agnes and B's adventures and scrapes and and through the relationships we see them develop with their Hampstead housemates we start to see the kind of tension that perhaps builds up between really close friends uh, who mm. are beginning to have outside pressures and influences on their relationship for yes. the first time is is that a yeah. kind of theme you were keen to explore yes very much so because I, I I'm fascinated by that sort of last really lovely beautiful platonic love affair that you have with a friend could be a man or a woman uh before you sort of start your adult life proper and i mean i certainly had one um but at some point there has to be the wrenching apart because you can't stay together forever and you do have to go your separate ways so it's a subject I've I've written about before. It, it it's very much part of I left my tent in San Francisco. That was my B, and that's what that book is really about. That that book is really a, a, about the end of that amazing last love affair you have. That's platonic. That's entirely platonic before you start the rest of your life. Um, but very intense. Yeah, very intense. Yeah, mm. it's it's well. Uh, I think most people have experienced this. It's sort of like you're in a relationship, but you're not. But you are, if you get what yeah. I mean. It's just it's not sexual. Yeah, it's kind of almost like I th- a practice. I th- I, yeah, it, it's it it's really. I think women especially are are capable of really intense platonic uh, friendships, and they've got nothing to do with sex, but but it is about love. No, this isn't the first book you've written about the Ledbury family um, because your first no. adult novel, The Things We Left Unsaid, that was focused on Agnes's uh, older sister and niece. Um, yes. Was there something that drew you back to writing more about Agnes's youth? Yes, it was. Uh, uh, the, the, the feedback from Things We Left Unsaid was that everybody loved Agnes and she was clearly sort of a favourite character from that novel. And that's what, and we didn't see much of Florence in Things We Left Unsaid. We, we see her very, very briefly. And I knew that I wanted to uh, have a book set in 1971 and explore the impact that, that Female Eunuch had. And it just suddenly st- struck me, given that I had so enjoyed writing about that family, that I would stay within that family because obviously Agnes is just a, a side player in in Things We Left Unsaid. But I wanted to give her her own book. So it was like the marriage of two worlds coming together. Now, I understand that although you initially got sidetracked into first working as a solicitor and then as yes. a, obviously as a comedy performer and actress, yes. it was always your ambition to become a writer. Tell me, how did you segue from the law into comedy? Yeah, so I, I was sitting on the tube one morning. It was about six o'clock. And I had a great big box full of documents and I just looked down the carriage and everybody else sitting on on the tube also had the big boxy documents that you have when you're a lawyer. And everyone looked grey and ill. And I just suddenly thought, oh my God, this is the next 40 years of my life. I'm not sure I can do this. And I got off the tube and I walked to my uh, office and then I went to my senior partner's office, who is a wonderful man. 
And I said, I'm, I've got terrible news. I'm leaving. And, and he thought I'd been headhunted. And I said, no, I, I am leaving to become a writer. And bear in mind, I'd written nothing at this point. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I had no job to go to, nothing. It was, it was that thing of, I think if you're creative, you have a what if that's hanging over you all the time. It's like a, an itch you can't get rid of. And for me, the what if itch was too much to bear any longer. And I knew that I had to go away and I had to, had to see where, uh, you know, it would take me uh, or I was going to go mad. And so that's what I did. And I mean, it was of the great, greatest irony, of course, that, that, that for the first 10 years, I didn't do any writing at all because I, I was sidetracked in front of a camera. Uh, and on and in radio and and I did radio and TV and presenting and and acting which I hadn't actually intended to do it just it had <laughs> happened by accident and um, and it was after I'd done uh, the smoking room I think and I just said look come on the, the reason you left you stopped being a lawyer was because you wanted to be a proper writer and so that's when I started writing the books and how does the writing compare with more collaborative work you've done as a comedy writing performer it's a, if it's a very much of an on your own job compared to what you've previous what I, you have previously been doing. it is it is much much easier when you're working with other people because you obviously you don't have to, it, it's not it's not quite as hard that's that's the point I mean I do I still do a lot of collaborative work because I'm uh I, the other thing I do is I'm a screenwriter for children's animation series and there is nothing greater and you will have no better day than around a table with a load of children's animation writers because mm-hmm. that that is the best fun you can have but writing novels is a very long hard lonely process and i'm a bit weird i actually look forward to the editor's notes i really enjoy doing second drafts of of novels as opposed to first drafts. First drafts for me, I just get it down and get it done. Second draft is when the book happens for me. This is a question I'm going to ask, which I try to remember to ask all the authors we interview, um, which is, do you have a memory of using libraries as a child? Or indeed, do you still use them today? It's always lovely to hear when libraries have had a positive yes. effect on people's lives. But of course, I'm quite prepared to hear you say you've never been in one in your life or that you've always hated them. <laughs> if you do have uh, any no, feelings I, about libraries. I love libraries. I absolutely adore libraries. I I was mad for my school library, weirdly, uh, because it had these lovely little cubby holes. And to me, there is nothing more wonderful than the smell of books and being in a little sort of a, a, a little cubby hole, being able to read a book. Certainly when I was Oxford... I would spend all day, every day, just skipping between the Bodleian and the Radcliffe Canberra, just being astonished at these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful libraries. I think it's one of my my happiest memories from being at Oxford was just the quality of the libraries. It was just breathtaking. They were amazing places. I um, I love libraries. Actually, as there's been such a gap since you since you finished this one, presumably you've got yes. a new novel ready and waiting to go, or or if not, well, I'm currently writing a non-fiction book um, that will be out next year, and um, I'm almost at the end of the first draft of it now. But it's uh, it's called Letters from Brenda, and when my mother died, uh, I was left with very complicated 
feelings about her because she'd had a, an undiagnosed mental illness for all of her life. And three years after she died, we, it, my father finally sold the family house and the new owners got in contact with me because they had found two suitcases full of letters from her to me. And the book is about that. So were these letters that she had sent or didn't send? Or Yes, and, and I, they'd obviously gone back home, obviously when I'd moved house oh, or yeah. something, but I had forgotten about them. And it's 79 letters from her to me. Oh. But the book is, is about me. It's, it's me following her from birth to death and just exploring her life and, and what all of the big moments that, that turned her into the person she was and trying to get to the bottom of of whether she did have a mental illness or whether she was the sum total of the things that had happened to her. But it's going to be quite the read, I can tell you. 